just preached through Ruth at my church a few months ago, and it was a rich time, but it was also a compressed time. I am a volunteer assistant pastor, and after my full-time job and family and other responsibilities are completed, I'm not left with much sermon prep time. So I lean pretty hard on my commentators and Logos Bible software. I try not to let them do all my work for me, but I do pick a few to dialogue with, usually especially one very good one, and I work through their comments as I write my sermon manuscripts. For the book of Ruth, I chose Barry Webb's chapter on Ruth in his New Studies in Biblical Theology volume, which I've got on the screen behind me, Five Festal Garments. That was my main conversation partner. I bought it in Logos, the only place I will ever use commentaries because it's so convenient, and I marked it up with lots of highlights. I grabbed numerous quotations to paste into my sermon document. I thoroughly enjoyed preaching through the book of Ruth, and in the end, I found myself thoroughly grateful for the careful, scholarly, warm-hearted work of Barry Webb that I found so illuminating and insightful. I asked him to come on to the Bible Study Magazine podcast for this second episode of season three, a season in which we are talking about biblical theology. Webb is a master of this discipline, and I think you'll find his comments on the book of Ruth, well, careful, scholarly, and warm-hearted. It's my wonderful pleasure today on the Bible Study Magazine podcast to have Dr. Barry Webb coming all the way from Adelaide, Australia. We are still talking in this season of the podcast about biblical theology, and Dr. Webb is both a practitioner and, may I say, a lover of the field of biblical theology. He works particularly in the field of Old Testament, and I've got up on my screen behind me a commentary, I don't know if you'd call it that, it's in the New Studies in Biblical Theology, the book Five Festal Garments by Barry Webb that I myself used recently when I preached at my little church through the precious book of Ruth. And it is that book of the Bible, Ruth, four chapters, that we're going to focus our discussion on today. But first, Dr. Webb, might I ask, how do you serve and how have you served the body of Christ? Well, uh, I'll just uh, talk about the main way, I guess, and that is in theological education. So um, I was the head of Old Testament and Hebrew at Moore Theological College in Sydney for about 15 years. I taught there about 30 years altogether and um, also as a visiting professor in some other colleges overseas and elsewhere. One of my big privileges uh, was to teach at Nanjing Theological Seminary in China for three consecutive years and uh, I counted that a a great opportunity to uh, serve pastors in, in China. Um, but preaching and pastoral ministry, I'm not an ordained minister, um, but uh, I love uh, preaching and uh, God has given me many opportunities to do that over the years. I'm more restricted now because of uh, health issues, but I'm still able to write and that enables me to continue to uh, to minister to people, perhaps more people than I could before, through the through the books that I'm still writing. 
And those books that you're writing evidence your heart for pastors because they are eminently useful for those pastors. They certainly were for me. When I preached through Ruth just recently, as I mentioned, your commentary, your really your chapter in Five Festal Garments, your chapter on Ruth was my main conversation partner and help. I have limited time for sermon prep because I'm kind of tri-vocational. And so there's really one big chunk that in my case happens on a Sunday morning because our service is at 2 p.m. in which I just dive into that passage and race through a manuscript. Now, that's based on years of prior study. I'm not just starting from scratch, but I found your insights to be invaluable. And I'm gonna reveal some of those. I'm gonna ask you to comment on some of them during our conversation here. You've also written, and help me not miss things here, you've also written a commentary in the Preach the Word series for Crossway on Judges and Ruth, right? Yes, yeah, subtitle is God in Chaos, which is deliberately a provocative title to get people to open the, and read it. But um, uh, that that may be of interest to people watching because it's more recent. The Five Festival Garments 21 years ago was published. The, the one we're now talking about was only six years ago. And it's actually a series of expositions, uh, uh, written sermons, if you like, on Judges and Ruth. Yeah, I uh, I don't myself tend to use sermonic homiletic commentaries in part because I'm afraid that I will steal too much. <laughs> I want I want to read a little bit more of the nuts and bolts and then pull the homiletics out of that. Obviously, I don't disdain pastoral or homiletical commentaries or those who write them. I'm very grateful for them. And in Logos Bible Software, we've got all the Barry Webb commentaries you could ask for. We've got that book in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, which I actually did by myself with my own money in Logos Bible Software, and your NICOT volume on Judges that I also bought with my own money actually many years ago in, uh, in Logos Bible Software. I do find that when I'm pressed for time as a pastor, it's just so helpful for me to be able to call up those passages quickly. And again, just thank you for the work that you've done. Let's dive in. Let's talk about the book of Ruth and its contributions to biblical theology. And I want to start actually not with Ruth, not with that little copse, as it were, in the forest, but with the whole forest or the whole continent, really, of the Bible. What is biblical theology? How would you define it? Well, very simply, I think it's a study of the Bible's theology in the form in which it is given to us. And that form is basically a narrative that runs all the way from creation to new creation by a fall and redemption. And everything is related somehow to that basic story, that basic plot line. And um, I think biblical theology works with that and uh, relates whatever part of the Bible it's studying to that basic uh, narrative, and in a sense, it's uh, it's the ultimate proof against uh, proof texting, if you like, or safeguard against proof texting, because whatever you're working with, you're reading in context. I value systematic theology. I actually um, went to more college because I knew I needed it. It's what I didn't have, and I value it very much. But uh, 
I, uh, I gravitated towards biblical theology as my passion, if you like, during that time, and I've, uh, I've developed that interest ever since. I have a similar story, though I did not go to Moore Theological College. When biblical theology was first presented to me, and I actually interviewed the professor who introduced it to me on the previous season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, Dr. Ken Casillas, uh, we were using the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology as one of our textbooks, and it really it took an, embarrassing long, an embarrassingly long time for biblical theology to dawn on me, for me to really grasp it. But once I did, it really was the main leap in my entire life in my understanding of Scripture. Now, we've established that sort of macro view. Let's get really micro. When I was preaching through the book of Ruth, I took four weeks. I did one chapter per week. I followed you in noticing something that I felt my congregation could really benefit from, and that was picking up little key words in the text of Ruth. And in this case, we're talking about words like kindness and worthy, words like return and empty. And I was using a more formal translation, that would be the English Standard Version. Um, it was helpful that those words were all translated with the same English words. A key word like chesed in Hebrew comes out as kindness consistently in the ESV, if I'm not mistaken. Do you think that principle of concordance, translating one Hebrew word with the same English word each time, is essential, useful? What would you say? I think it's good if one can do it uh, without losing vital aspects of the meaning. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Hebrew words like davar and word and the uh, uh, Greek rough equivalent logos. These words have a great range of meanings that can't really be captured by any one English words. So, davar can mean word, it can mean thing. Um, logos can mean word. It can mean a sort of abstract principle like rationality or the uh, cosmic order behind the universe. And I don't think one can find any English word that will do justice to those shades of meaning. And so, those words will vary in what they're conveying from passage to passage, context to context, and uh, I think there's value in trying to deliver to the ordinary reader, I mean, uh, the meaning which is being conveyed rather than the word necessarily. But I think a more transparent translation like the SV can be a big help to the preacher, um, the student of the Bible, but not uh, with these days, with the software we've got available, we have access to, you know, investigating those those uh, link words and so on, perhaps a little more easily. But um, I think the version that uh, tries more to render the sense of what's being conveyed by a word in a context is more helpful just to the the ordinary reader of the Bible at home and so on. I'm absolutely in agreement with you, and I just kind of want to translate a little bit and emphasize what you've just said, because I take it as a big part of my calling 
as editor of Bible Study Magazine and just as a Bible teacher and YouTuber as it happens to get evangelical Protestants to calm down about Bible translations <laughs> and to see the benefit in the formal translations, one of which I just named and you echoed, yes. but not to view that method of translation as somehow sacrosanct, as if it's a violation, to in some cases have a translator who says, you know, given the context here, Given the difficulty of this word, I really think I can't hold on to the same English word. And I observe that the King James translators themselves said in their preface, translators to the reader, that to do that, to really insist on keeping the same English word for the same Hebrew or Greek word, they said smacks more of curiosity than of wisdom. So I'm just affirming what you said. Now here's something else that you said. I've got it written down here. This was one of the things I literally just highlighted in Five Festal Garments. Let's talk about that word kindness. You said kindness is essentially acceptance of the duty of care involved in covenanted relationships, especially those of marriage and family. So let's talk about that theme of kindness in the book of Ruth. Here's, here's my question. Did Ruth have an obligation to stick with Naomi? What is kindness? I don't think she had a legal obligation to do that. But uh, I think she probably had a moral obligation based on family relationships and the way uh, she'd experienced Ruth's kindness to her. And um, so there's a certain nobility about her being kind to Naomi in those circumstances because it cost her a lot. Uh, as Naomi said, your marriage prospect, humanly speaking, naturally speaking, you're a young woman and your marriage prospects are going to be much better at home. But Ruth risked, you know, perhaps remaining single all her life by going with Naomi. So that's, a, that's an example of chesed, if you like the Hebrew term, for kindness and a number of other things, but um, at work in personal relationships. And uh, so, yeah, I guess that's, that's the way I understand uh, the way Ruth behaved in that context, how she expressed kindness. It's so striking. I, when I preached through this passage, made reference to something I kind of doubt resonated very much with my audience and I felt a little bit bad about that. But for me, I immediately thought of a choral piece where the, uh, the composer, I actually don't know who it was, took that famous scene of Ruth and wrote and just with stirring music, entreat me not to leave you. Here's Ruth sticking to her mother-in-law. And like you said, there's not a legal obligation, but there's something in the connection that was formed there that made it appropriate for Ruth to express chesed, this exactly. covenant loyalty or kindness. And now let's talk about that and let's talk about preaching and Bible teaching. Um, you're a preacher, you're a Bible teacher, you um, I believe have told me that you still run like Friday night Bible study groups. Under what circumstances would you go ahead and name a key Hebrew word like chesed? And under what circumstances would you uh, leave people to the English tools only? Well, I guess in short, where I judged it was necessary uh, to convey, you know, uh, what I'm seeing here in the Bible. But uh, I would do it in a way that didn't create distance between me as a scholar and them as a, a person who hasn't had my, 
my academic sort of background. So, um, in general, I don't refer to Hebrew and Greek terms from the pulpit because, and especially, I'm very reluctant to correct in some way the translation that is in common use in their church because I want them to have confidence in the Bible they have in their lab and they're going to take home. I don't want to sort of be undermining that. But there may be occasions where it's appropriate. By the way, uh, Mark, I think you read the right book for you as a preacher. You read Five Vestal Garments. Those were lectures given in an academic environment. You'll notice that I did refer to quite a lot of uh, technical terms and Hebrew and Greek words, particularly Hebrew words there. Yes. Um, in those. But the other book I referred to is not aimed at the preacher so much as the as the churchgoer who um, doesn't have the sort of background that you and I have. Yeah, I did notice that. And uh, you're just saying so many things that I could just go off in different directions <laughs> on, things that really please me here, like you're trying not to undermine the English Bible translation in people's laps. You're also trying not to undermine the skill, the development of the skill of being a Berean, an Acts 17 kind of Christian who is able to search the scriptures to see whether the things that you, the preacher, are saying are so. And the more you use those Hebrew and Greek words, the more distance you put between you and those people. And it's true that Bible software, may I say, I'm standing in the offices of Faith Life right now, does decrease that gap but still, people find that bewildering. A lot of Christians don't know how to use those tools well. The, uh, the, the tagline for Bible Study Magazine is study the Bible with the best tools. And I would like to hand those tools to people as much as possible. So that is a positive thing that can come from occasionally mentioning, mentioning a Hebrew or Greek word. You can show yes, how, for yes. example, logos um, yes. is a little just more rich, more complicated than any one English equivalent. Yeah, I'm just totally with you once again. Let's get back to Ruth. Let's talk about this other word that comes up over and over again. Or I should say in such a small book, hardly anything can come up over and over again, but this one for such a small book comes up often. It's this word worthy, uh, I think in Hebrew, chayil. You mentioned that theme and discussed it in the places where it comes up. When Boaz is described with this title of worthiness, this descriptor, um, and Ruth is, what does that mean? What is worthiness and how does that theme get developed, not only in Ruth, but in the rest of the Old Testament? Well, uh, the first time it's used of Boaz, it's more to do with his standing um, as a landowner and a wealthy man and so on and so on in the community. But other dimensions, you see, when he uses it of Ruth, he's not using it. She hasn't got that kind of standing at all. He's using it more of her moral standing, her nobility of character. But by the time we get to that point, we've seen that Boaz himself is not just a man of wealth and standing, you know, social status. He also is a man of noble character. And so when the word is repeated, it um, it's establishing a, a link of nobility, of character between the two of them. You see, you see what I mean? So the word has already developed extra connotations 
after it was used to Ruth before he, well, after it was used to Boaz before it's used of Ruth. And it brings those extra dimensions of meaning with it by the time he uses it of Ruth. So, um, you know, when I teach people, uh, when I preach, I do want to teach them skills, but I don't necessarily want to teach them Greek and Hebrew. I want to teach them to be sensitive readers of the Bible. And a good translation will will go some of the way to uh, to showing them the sort of what's going on in the story in the way I've just described. I would like for lay readers of the Bible in my church, people to whom God has not given the opportunity or the calling to study Hebrew and Greek, I would like for them to be able to read the word kindness as describing Ruth and start making some connections in their Bibles, perhaps all the way to the New Testament where Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, includes kindness. Or when I was a kid, one of the first verses that I had to memorize was in the King James Version, be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just like Christ has forgiven you. They are these little connections and threads that go throughout the Bible. And whether you start it in the New Testament and go back to Ruth or start in Ruth and notice that connection to the New Testament, that's the kind of thing that makes me love the basically Reformation tradition because it actually is producing people who can do this sort of thing, who can make that sort of connection. And I wanna ask you to make another connection about this word, hayil. Um, isn't it true that Proverbs 31, the famous passage describing the virtuous woman, names her with that same word? What connection do you see between Ruth and Proverbs 31? Uh, well, uh, one is uh, describing the qualities of a of a worthy woman. That's the acrostic poem, Proverbs 31. And then Ruth is showing us a person living out that in, in, in difficult circumstances of her life. So they're both about the same basic topic, but they... Uh, deal with it in complementary ways. Let me follow up then with a question that tries to again look at that whole picture of Scripture. There's a connection we just talked about between Ruth and one other portion of Scripture. If a printer somehow dropped out the book of Ruth, uh uh-oh, apps, you know, here's a major mistake, but nobody catches it. And you wind up with the Bible that doesn't have the book of Ruth. What are you missing? What unique contribution to the story of the Bible or to all of biblical theology? Even the picture of God, does Ruth make? Well, of course, if it wasn't there, you wouldn't know you were missing anything. But when it is there, you realize you're being given something extra. And that's, that's really the thing. Now, you know, there are, there are a lot of very important biblical theological themes in Ruth. So kindness is one, and I've sort of highlighted that because I think that's distinctive, but redemption, inclusion, providence, you know, all these are there. But I think the special contribution of Ruth, and by the way, it, the way it ends, it shows that whatever Ruth has uh, said about those themes converge on Christ, the son of David, because it ends with genealogy. 
of, uh, of uh, David. But I think the special contribution of Ruth is uh, it's a kind of study in the application of the law to the very complicated situations that life presents to us. And uh, I think that's a very special contribution uh, that's of enormous value to us as readers of the Bible because that's a life issue for us. And uh, whether we're dealing with, you know, the Old Testament or the New Testament, um, you know, Paul addresses particular circumstances in the church of his day where there are similarities and there are differences in the issues that we have to face with. So we believe in the authority of God's word. We want to apply it to our lives, but wh how, what kind of appropriate, if you like, flexibility do we need in doing that? And I think the book of Ruth is a great study in that and makes a wonderful contribution to that issue. I certainly agree. It's become precious to me, and I think I've heard you say in the past that whatever book you're studying at the moment is your favorite, and Ruth was certainly my favorite for four full weeks. When I preached through Ruth at my church, I quoted one line from Five Festal Garments in each sermon. I did, of course, acknowledge where I was getting this from Dr. Barry Webb. This was that line. Those whom God saves by signs and wonders, as at the Exodus, he continues to save by his providential workings in their day-to-day -day lives and his kindness, chesed, you put in parentheses, by which Israel is built up is to be found not only in great national deliverances, but in the way his covenant people treat one another on a daily basis. And I, I felt that your line there brought together that huge biblical, theological, redemptive, historical, creation, fall, redemption narrative, and the application in sort of Jewish terminology, the halakhic, you know, where do I go with this angle, which made it easy for me to preach. And so I did find myself making applications like be kind. I like to talk to kids in my sermons and I would just address them and say, children, the Bible is modeling kindness for you and that is something that you ought to reflect. However, it was redemptive, historical, biblical, theological approaches to exactly. especially the Old exactly. Testament that first exactly. alerted me to the problem of what Brian Chapel calls be-like messages, where the whole message of the sermon just boils down to be like Noah, be, you know, courageous, kind, and conciliatory like Caleb. You know, you can toss in some alliteration there too if it, if it actually fits the passage. Usually it doesn't. Um, and I was warned that can get trite and repetitive and moralistic. So how do you balance when you come to apply a book of Ruth, the concern to not be trite, the concern not to focus too much on the, the needs of human activity and obedience versus the actions of God. Help us do that both in maybe for preaching and teaching and for just personal study in the book of Ruth. Right. So I think, um, Mark, what you just said is an excellent example of the way we can overreact to a warning that we've been given as part of our theological training or tradition. And we've been 
told not to just moralize from the Bible, not to just use the Bible as a, as a source of examples of good and bad behavior, but to um, but teach theologically and preach theologically from a gospel base. And um, I think the book of Ruth uh, does that in a beautiful way. It shows us, uh, if you like, kindness at the human level, people showing kindness to one another. It shows us redemption and inclusion and a whole lot of other biblical themes, very important ones. Um, but the way it ends with the genealogy of David links those themes uh, to Christ. And if you were just moralizing from the book, you tend to ignore the genealogy at the end. But from a... a um, biblical theology point of view it's absolutely critical because it shows that um, for the people of God redemption and showing kindness to one another are not just moral issues they're part of um, reflecting the character of the God we worship and we know in the way we relate to one another as his people and so it's, it's, it's a great example. So it does it the other way for what we normally do it. We normally begin with big R redemption, for example, or big K kindness, and then we'll apply it to the, you know, the uh, small letter versions of those. Ruth does it the other way around. It shows us these things that operate in the personal relationships of people, and then it shows their... They're part of a much bigger uh, theological theme that reaches its climax in Christ. So I think it makes a wonderful contribution to biblical theology by doing that for us. Great example for preachers. (laughs) I, I just so fully agree. And it actually makes me think of God's whole choice to use the genre of narrative so much in Scripture, and indeed to hang the entire Bible on one big narrative of, I like to say, what God is doing to glorify himself by redeeming his fallen creation. You know, he could have just listed out all the rules, be kind, be patient, love others, have joy. He does at times list out rules, but he also, in his knowledge of our makeup, knowing that we are dust, knowing our frame, gives us these examples that are instantiations of these values. And you can think, be kind, be kind, be kind, or you can think, be like Ruth, that moment when she showed incredible loyalty and therefore kindness, covenant loyalty to her mother-in-law who didn't exactly deserve it and wasn't exactly asking for it. Ruth has got the, it paints this beautiful picture of what kindness looks like. You said in your book, I've always believed that a willingness to start with the obvious is an essential element of good literary criticism. And that's what you're doing in your book, literary criticism. That is, you're observing the fine details of the text and drawing the author's intended meaning and therefore ultimately theological truth out of those passages. You said, uh, starting with the obvious like this is a form of epistemic humility 
a willingness to submit to the text and to let it determine the shape of the interpretation, a readiness to be attentive and to be led from the obvious design features of the text into its more subtle levels of meaning. Could you explain what you mean by that? Maybe make an application to the Book of Ruth. Well, um, I guess the thing that I'm trying to steer people away from is coming to a part of the Bible like Ruth with their, uh, with their doctrine all worked out and then uh, a, a sort of attaching it or imposing it onto Ruth. Um, whereas they might well miss something by doing that Sensitivity to the text means, let me hear this speak with its own voice. Let me try and listen very carefully to this particular part of the Bible and see what emerges from it and then reflect on that relationship of that to the gospel. Now, um, I make a lot of uh, redemption, inclusion, kindness, providence and so on. These are these are all aspects, I guess, of our doctrine, but I don't think I've imposed them on Ruth. But being a sensitive reader of Ruth, I've watched them emerge from the text in Ruth and then seen how Ruth connects them with the bigger story of the Bible, uh, which reaches climax in Christ. That's what I think we need to do as uh, people who stand humbly before the text and uh, confident that it will lead us the right way to those great truths. You are a model of what you're describing, and you remind me of what one of my own mentors in preaching and theology, a longtime pastor of mine, said. He said that expository preaching is caught as much as taught. And what he meant by expository preaching is very much what you're practicing under maybe a different label, although you might use that one too, but your efforts at biblical theology and literary criticism are just ways of answering the question that my mentor taught me to ask. When you come to the Bible, you don't ask, what can I say about this? You ask, what does this say? And you just keep repeating that question to yourself over and over again. What does this say? What does this say? What does this say? And my, my mentor said, asking those two questions, it's like a fork in the road. People who ask, what can I say about this, are going to end up wherever. Almost certainly they're going to end up falling down the slope they were already on. But those who ask, what does this say, are going to end up, lo and behold, finding out. Those who ask will receive. Now, I asked, I asked the Lord for wisdom on one particularly difficult element of the book of Ruth. And I did get help from you. This is one place where I especially did go out also to other commentaries. I usually have one main kind of conversation partner among my commentaries. And for this time round, it was you and Five Festal Garments. I'm still so very grateful. But I checked some, some more technical commentaries when it came to this question of leveret marriage and the all-important scene, the climactic scene in chapter 4, in which Boaz discerns that there's somebody ahead of him in line to get Naomi's land and marry Ruth. And then there's this transaction between the two 
um, that I have another question about in a minute when it comes to Bible translation, but I found myself a bit bewildered, frankly, and my usual practice of relying on, you know, background knowledge study I've done in the past and then uh, digging into the commentaries to be able to get a sermon done quick, it kind of failed me here. And I, I was left standing before the congregation feeling like, I don't totally know what to say and I'm gonna to have to back off of making grand pronouncements or being very certain about what this passage says. When it comes to that key scene, all of the leveret marriage ins and outs, um, I wanted to ask you, um, is it, was it just me or is it kind of difficult to put together what's happening in Ruth 4 with the leveret marriage rules the, uh, that occur in the Pentateuch? Well, uh, this, this is a big issue, and I think it's a, it's, it's a very important part of what Ruth gives us, because you have in the Bible the rules, so to speak, in the law and uh, the teaching of the New Testament too, but they don't always fit easily the particular circumstances that you're faced with. So what happens, what has happened historically is the people have either ignored the rules or they've multiplied the rules and made up new ones to fit the circumstances. And this is the direction that Judaism took actually historically um, but Ruth shows us that uh, uh, it's a natural process that around the rules, if you want to be faithful to what they are intended to achieve, if you like, what the principle embodied in the rule was, then you set about uh, trying to apply that as best you can to the circumstances of life. So, in a, in a godly community, there grows up godly custom, if you like. Now, the leveret marriage, you know, the, the particular uh, legislation about it, I think in Deuteronomy 25, talks about two brothers living together and, and um, one dies uh, without having children and so on. The aim of the, the marriage by the by the surviving brother in those circumstances is to uh, provide children who can inherit the dead father's property, keep property within the family, and also to save the w woman from uh, perpetual widowhood for the rest of her life, which is not an enviable condition to be in in those circumstances and so the custom developed well if if there's no surviving brother the nearest male relative should fulfill that role and that's a lovely example of good custom that reflects the spirit uh, less of the legislation and uh, we all have to do that you know that's part of our faithfulness to scripture it's not taking liberties with scripture it's not being, um, you know, uh, in an ungodly way, uh, taking liberties with Scripture. It's actually part of godly obedience to Scripture and living it out in the complexities of our daily lives. A very and important actually, pastoral issue too. Right. <laughs> it's actually the book of Ruth, uh, among you know many other passages that 
are giving us a revealed indication that that's the way we're supposed to treat these laws. They're, we are looking for that spirit and then looking for the creator's wisdom in how to apply the law to our particular situation. In that passage, Ruth 4, I had one sort of minor technical question. Um, I'm so sensitive to the issue of English Bible translation and how people read them, how they regard them. And I am very careful, like you said, not to undermine people's confidence in the translation in their laps. There was one point in that four sermon series, one sermon per chapter in the book of Ruth, where I made a comment about the possibility of alternate translations. I kind of want to see if I can get your either validation of or criticism of my choice, and then just tell us what you think of this passage. It's in Ruth 4. It's where Boaz says to the kinsman redeemer who's ahead of him in line to get Naomi's land and get Ruth. He says, turn aside, friend. And I looked at the Hebrew because I noticed the translations differed and I saw some comments in the commentaries. Some of the translations have Boaz calling this guy so-and-so, turn aside so-and-so. One of them, I want to say it's the Net Bible, actually says, turn aside John Doe, which is kind of jarring to, to read when you're going through an Old Testament passage that you know happened 3,000 something years ago before even the time of David. Um, I went ahead and mentioned, hey, if you check multiple translations, you're gonna see that they differ here a little bit. Here's what's going on. It does seem that the Hebrew is basically saying, like the King James does, turn aside such a one. It's like going out of its way not to, to name this guy. And then I made some observations uh, based uh, on uh, about why I think the narrator might have done that when he could just as easily have named the guy. Uh, first, do you validate or criticize my approach? And second, how would you take that passage, that, that use of that little phrase there? Um, I think your number one was a comment on your approach. Is that yes. right? Yes, I think it was a good yes. approach. The thing is, it's a rare expression. I mean, Belidi uh, Almoni, I think it is. And if one was to sort of take up a dictionary and look at those expressions, you'd find something like uh, such or um, such a one. You'd find something like that. The trouble is, if we say that in English, you know, uh, we don't actually know what connotations that would have had in the in the original setting, cultural setting. It's idiomatic and you it's very, very hard when you don't have lots and lots of examples from another cultural context to know exactly what might have been conveyed by that. And what you need to do is to rely on context then in Ruth. And the immediate context is how Boaz actually deals with this man. Is he potential rival, a threat to his own desires and what his hopes to come out of the situation. And I think, uh, as you read on, you see that he deals with him courteously, he deals with him openly, he puts the issues squarely before him, acknowledges his right to prior uh, claim on, uh, on Ruth and so on. And so I don't think it can convey hostility. My guess is that um, it's a little bit like, it's not the same expression in Esther, 
But remember Mordecai says to us, who knows, you know, whether you may have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And what he's saying is how remarkable that uh, you should be in that position at that moment. And I think possibly that's what it's really conveying here, that Boaz is saying, how remarkable that you should have come along. Of all persons, that you should have come along. So please turn aside here and let's talk about it. I suspect that's what he's doing. It's not an expression... If you say, oh, such such a person or John Doe, whatever that means in America, and I've got a rough idea, but <laughs> wouldn't work in Australia. But um, if it creates any sense of, you know, putting a person down, it will be inappropriate, I think, reading it in context. And therefore, I think turn aside friend would be quite appropriate uh, way of doing it in an English translation. That is what the ESV in front of me had. And you know what? You just changed my mind. I thought, based on another commentator, that what the narrator was doing was subtly dishonoring this individual because he didn't step up to fulfill, uh, with chesed, his obligations as a kinsman redeemer. But I saw what you were saying, too, already, and so your argument here just persuades me now. It's kind of like the book of Esther, not just in the phrase for such a time as this, but you can just see the providential hand of God over and over again. And when the narrator mentions happenstance, you just feel like the narrator's winking at you, like, we know why happenstances happen. We know who arranges it so that the very individual who needs to come along at that moment comes along right at that moment and at that time in that place so that they can have this key encounter. God is arranging all this. And at the very end of the book, in case you missed it, you've got the narrator pointing to, hey, here's why God did this. The king, David, came from, ultimately from this union. I wanted to ask you, as we sort of wrap up, and thank you so much for your time here, Dr. Webb, I wanted to ask you about a book that I happen to know is coming out soon, or at least that you've submitted the manuscript for. That would be your commentary on the book of Job for the EBTC, Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary Series, that my own Lexham Press, I'm standing in the offices actually of Lexham Press right now, um, and I'm an editor there consulting with them. Um, tell us about that commentary that you've got coming out. What's the contribution that you seek to make? Who's the audience for this work? Um, well, it's um, it's a reasonably thorough exposition of Job, um, but it is aimed more at the um, the thinking, thoughtful Christian grappling with big questions of life, uh, such as. Uh, how is it that when I leave a godly life, you know, I, I'm a, I face a situation like this, and where is God in this, and uh, has He become my enemy? Has He turned against me? And um, the backstory to my writing of it is that um, I'd already um, committed to writing this commentary on Job before I was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I'm now in my third battle with cancer. Um, 
But the point is that why I tell you that is that um, I was living with that situation while I was writing the commentary on Job. So it was a great book for me to uh, to be living with uh, through my chemo treatment and all the rest of it. And I struggled whenever it was possible for me to get the disc and, and write something, uh, keep it going all the way through. So it's come out of that kind of life experience for me. And I think um, it taught me, um, I guess, I have to live with unanswered questions, but they don't need to undermine my relationship with God. And the beautiful thing I saw uh, in Job was that the friends had their theology and they were applying it to Job, uh, but it wasn't working for him. And the difference between Job and them was that they talked about God a lot and uh, they were trying to fit Job into their theology, if you like, Job spoke to God all the time. He wrestled with God and he was eventually vindicated by God um, and the friends were rebuked for, the, for their behaviour. And there's a great warning for that in me. I found a lot of people, deeply committed Christians, were not particularly helpful to me in the way they spoke to me through that time. But um, it... Uh, it 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 taught me to uh, live with unanswered. God doesn't actually answer Job's questions at the end, but he commends him as his servant right. at the end, all the way through. So that's a little comment. I hope people will find it a helpful commentary, particularly if they're faced with those sort of life issues themselves. So here's a scholar who can dig into the Hebrew who remembered off the top of his head the obscure, little-used, maybe even once-used Hebrew phrase that is translated friend in Ruth chapter 4. Somebody who has spent a bunch of his life in libraries, I have to presume, and yet you hear the beating heart of a Christian behind his work. And when you, Dr. Webb, go into that study, go into that library, you come out bearing gold to give away to Christians, and I, for one, am very grateful. Let's end with a little question about the book of Ruth. Let's pull it back to the book of Ruth. I have another quotation from your commentary that I found to be striking. You said that the overall movement in Ruth is from death to life. And as you were mentioning cancer, I thought about that phrase of yours, death to life, barrenness to fruitfulness, emptiness to fullness, curse to blessing. When I went through your commentary and read those words, when I preached through the book of Ruth and came to the end, I was just exulting in the goodness and the plan of God. And one thing that I said to the people was that if Ruth, a Moabitess, and Rahab, who's also in the line of David, a um, uh, a woman who was a woman of the night from Jericho can be placed by God's grace into the line of the Messiah. This shows God's dedication to blessing every family of the earth, and that means even you. <laughs> Would you agree with that sort of final summation um, of the, the contribution of the book of Ruth? It ends with that 
mention, that genealogical mention? Am I making the right connection here back to Genesis 12? Oh, yes, you are, you are, um, because the whole emptiness, fullness theme, the outsider to insider thing that's happening, uh, is a particular uh, demonstration of God's commitment to bless uh, others beside, if you like, his his, uh, his chosen people in, in that sense. But... Um, it shows him doing it through apparently very ordinary events. You know, it's, it's a lovely study in God being powerfully present to bless us when there's no, there's no big national events that we normally think of as salvation historical events happening. It's a sort of quiet, sort of backwater in one sense and yet there in these apparently normal events God is fulfilling his commitment to bless all the people of the world through through uh, Abraham and of course Boaz stands in that line and, and Ruth is brought in and included through uh, him being like if you like the God he, uh, he worships and serves. When Boaz first appears on the scene, he appears with Yahweh's name on his lips in chapter 2, and he's God's uh, agent for fulfilling the agenda that he announced to Abraham so long ago. And Ruth there is the one who's, who's on the receiving end of it. People who try to discern the hand of God in history can ascribe to God motivations and purposes that he didn't actually reveal. You can go too far, but you can also fall into the secular ditch. Uh, almost even Christians can fall into that ditch and be unwilling to connect the events of history back to the purposes of God. But a book like Ruth shows those massive purposes of God to bless every family of the earth and to do it through the line of David, specifically the Messiah, specifically his son, his anointed son. And it draws those massive threads into this tiny spot where that whole seed of the woman is hanging by a thread. We don't know it, but Ruth is necessary for God's plan. Is, is the guy going to get her? Is the the seed going to continue and going to go through her and God's great answer is yes. Thank you so much it's, it's, for it's just raising our affections. Yeah. Yes. Just uh, if I may say, sure. just the thing that clinches that and uh, is the way when you open your New Testament and read the way Jesus introduced to us in the very first chapter, there is Ruth, there is Rahab, Rahab and uh, it just completely completes uh, and seals, if you like, the reality that you've just been speaking about. This story is part of the uh, the great redemptive plan of God, even uh, even though it's apparently so so ordinary. So if you read too fast past the last couple of verses of the book of Ruth, at least by Matthew and Luke, well, I think it's just Matthew that mentions Ruth and Rahab, you'll get reminded of God's purposes in those events. Thank you, Dr. Webb. Thank you for your time. Thank you for investing your gifts for the body of Christ and for spending a few of them here on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. 
You're very welcome. Uh, it's a privilege to speak to you. You've just got to get some Barry Webb commentaries, probably all of them. He's written a bunch, links in the show notes. How could you not collect all six that we have in Logos Bible software? I will forgive you if you don't get the Spanish translation of the Zechariah volume, though I won't blame you if you do. But he's written on Zechariah and on Isaiah in the Bible Speaks Today series, Judges and Ruth in the Preaching the Word series by Crossway, Judges again in the new international commentary on the Old Testament, as well as in an academic monograph we have in Logos. And in the book we focused on today, he wrote on the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. You've just got to get that book at least, Five Festal Garments. It's gold. It will help you be a faithful and careful, warm-hearted practitioner of biblical theology. Thank you for joining me, your host, Mark Ward, on this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Bible Study Magazine is dedicated to helping you study the Bible with the best tools. To subscribe, just go to BibleStudyMagazine.com slash subscribe. To get a free copy of Logos Bible software, along with some free books, go to logos.com forward slash basic. Study the Bible with the best tools.